Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be starting a series. I'm talking about what biblical repentance really means and what it looks like. And the, the name of the, the just two-part little series within our series is Conviction, Confession, and Commitment. Um, and we're going to take the next two weeks uh, to look at Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10. Uh, they're not you can't, almost can't separate them because they, they go a very hand in hand within the same kind of scene. Uh, they, they go just together. And so we're going to look at them, but we're going to split them up into two different parts. Um, have you guys ever seen those shows where there's like the detective and, you know, they, they get someone and uh, they're trying to get them to confess? You know, they, they really think they did the crime. So they, they get them in the room. I don't know if this actually happens because I've never had to be in this situation, but they get them in the room. You know, they they even like will turn the lights off, except that one, that one like lamp, right? And they try to like sweat them out a little bit. They go in and out of the room, good cop, bad cop type of thing. And uh, they they're even crank the heat up so the guy starts like sweating. And, and they're trying to get a confession out of them, right? They want them to admit to something that they believe that, they, that he did. And, and if they get the confession, then it's going to be a whole lot easier to build the case around them. Um, and I'm sure you, you guys can understand that concept. What I want to tell you today is that God works different than that. He's not going to put us in a room, crank up the heat, you know, turn the lights, uh, you know, really bright in our face to get us to try to confess. Now, God does have a desire that we, could, we would come to him and admit our sin to him, um, but he uses something different. He uses a different tactic. He uses something called conviction. Do you guys know what conviction means? Some of you maybe do, some of you don't. Uh, What do you guys think? What does conviction mean? Yeah. Yeah, there's like, there's some, uh, uh, whether bad feelings or or guilt uh, that that you're doing something or have done something wrong. I think guilt doesn't quite do all of it because when when God, he's not trying to guilt trip us, he's trying to show us our error, our, our way um, that, we've, that we've gone off, off the road. And he uses his Holy Spirit to bring this conviction in us, that, that moment, and you guys have experienced that moment of, I'm, I'm in the wrong here. And he used it to bring us, he uses conviction to bring us a, to a place of confession. But you and I are always going to have the choice. God's never going to pin us in a corner and say, you better confess. Because God already knows everything, but he wants to uh, for us to confess and acknowledge that so that he can begin to work and uh, forgive those things. But when we try to cover our sin, uh, he's unable to give forgiveness. And so as we come to Nehemiah chapter 9, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we were in Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, we've been going verse by verse and chapter by chapter through this book. And chapter 8 was an, this awesome chapter where they basically had this, this little short mini Bible conference and they, they really just put God's word at the front, and, and, and they began to read it and begin to come back to it. And it brought this amazing amount of joy. Was, there's this celebration and, and worship, and uh, they began to just obey what God had, had done. And the awesome thing is we come now into Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, we see that it wasn't like this one-time thing. It wasn't this one time where they're like, let's worship God with everything we have, and then it kind of faded off. It wasn't this overhyped, emotional-type uh, event, but we see now uh, that this continues, that this was, became a part of who the people were, that this uh, couple day Bible conference type thing that happened turned into 
almost like a month-long worship service, that God was still doing something and, and there was more that he needed to do uh, within the people. And so we're going to see in chapter 9 that there's this transition where the people go from feasting to fasting. They go from conviction to confession. Okay, those are the two kind of things that we'll see today. But let's pray and we'll read Nehemiah chapter 9 and we'll read verses 1 through 4. Okay, Father, we come before you in uh, Lord, we admit our need for you. Lord, we acknowledge that, that we can't do life alone. And so we pray for this time, Lord, that you've set aside for us to hear your word. Lord, I know that each and every person that's in here, you've ordained them to be here. You've chosen and purposed them to be in this place. And so we ask that you would teach us that, Lord, if, if there's any parts of our hearts that are hard or maybe we feel tired or we feel lazy or just apathetic, Lord, would you wake us up by your spirit right now so we would be attentive to the reading, hearing, and understanding of your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 9. You guys there? If you're there, say word. Mm-mm, mm-mm. If you're there, say word. There you go. Nehemiah chapter 9. It says this, verses 1 through 4. Okay, that's all we'll kind of look at for this moment's time. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, so it's still that same month that we looked at in Nehemiah 8, the children of Israel were assembled, I mean, they got together with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage, meaning that they were Israelites, separated themselves from all foreigners. And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. Anyone know how long one-fourth of the day was? So it's saying day as in the daylight. So it's half of six, three. So it's three hours. So one-fourth of the day, uh, meaning the daylight. And for another fourth, they confessed and worship the Lord their God. So total of six hours. Then, I'm not even going to attempt to read the names today, but Jeshua, Bani, and uh, there's about eight guys that they stood, the Bible goes on to say that they stood on the stairs, look at verse four, uh, of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And we'll take a pause here. Uh, For the rest of this chapter from verses five through 38 is now their prayer of confession. You see, what, what's going on here? Well, you see that verse one, it starts out in saying that they get together and they assemble together and it describes their attitude in three ways. That they were fasting, that they, had, they were wearing something called sackcloth, and then they had dust on their heads. Very odd, very weird. Especially now, two thousand or more than 2,000 years removed from this moment, looking back on it, it's like, what, what is going on? Okay, you guys know what fasting is, right? What's fasting? Yeah. Okay. Anyone else want to add anything to that? Yep. You're close. Yeah. Okay, yes. So there's these different moments that you, that you and I are actually, we are called to fasting. It should be something that we normally do. But fasting isn't just about not eating. It's not like they were like, man, we're, we're feeling a little overweight today. We need to just like cut out some of the carbs and we just won't eat today. 
You say, if you choose not to eat today, you're just gonna be hungry, okay? But if you choose to fast, it's a, it's a choice. I'm gonna deny, I love food. I want food, like Joe was saying, but I'm not gonna have it. And instead, instead of eating, I'm gonna pursue the Lord in that time. So in the place of my meals, I'm gonna have, there's gonna be an extra attitude of just being with the Lord. Okay, that's fasting. And there's certain moments that we are to do that. And for them, this was a moment for them that they were desiring to do that. Along with fasting, they had sackcloth and they had dust on their heads. Very odd, very weird, but this was a social custom, right? We, you and I have certain social customs that if we were to do them in other countries, they would think we were weird. There's other customs that if we went to other con- countries, we'd be like, that's really weird, right? And so for this, this is a different country and it's thousands of years ago at this point. And so one of the things that they were to do as a sign of grieving and mourning is that they would get something called sackcloth. It was um, this material kind of similar to a potato sack, okay? You guys ever put on a potato sack before? Maybe for a potato sack race or something? A pretty itchy material, right? Not usually, it's not like a nice cotton t-shirt. And so they would, they would take off the clothes that they have and they would now put on this sackcloth. And it was a sign of grieving. And then they would get uh, dust from the, from the earth and kind of put it on their head. You're like, what, what's going on? It was a public display of inward hurt, okay? inward brokenness, inward grieving. Uh, that this would be a very common thing if maybe a loved one died, that then as a response, that they'd be like, they would feel so bad on the inside that they would have to display something on the outside. Kind of different than what we're used to, but that was, that was their custom then. Have you guys ever lost a loved one before, someone close to you? Or maybe you've seen someone go through losing a loved one. Um, you know, I've, I've definitely lost loved ones, but I've also seen people maybe lose their, their husband uh, or their wife. It's very, someone very close to them. And if you look, typically, you know, if someone loses someone like that, that afterward, you know, in that, in that period of that grieving period, they don't look the same almost. That typically they're not, they, they just look tired. Maybe they haven't been sleeping well. They don't eat. Maybe they're, they're having even a hard time taking care of themselves because they're hurting so much. And it's just like this, this outside, you, you display, what starts to display on the outside is what's happening inside, okay? So that's what's going on with the people. But why? Why are they fasting and the sackcloth and these ashes? And why are they putting on this public display of their hurting? is because the people come to this point that, you know, in Nehemiah 8, they're getting closer and closer with the Lord, that they're actually enjoying his presence, and, and it's good, and there's this, that season. But they begin to pursue God even more in their relationship. Um, that it, come, it brings them back to this place of renewed confession. I mean, they come back and they realize, oh man, we are still so far from where we need to be. They realize that they still have sin that needs to be dealt with, that they still have things in their heart and in their life that they need God to deal with, and they're broken over their sin. There's this display of brokenness before the Lord. And so it says that they start separating themselves from, from the foreigners, and you're like, well, that's kind of mean. That sounds racist. Okay, for them, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was it basically, the idea was that they didn't want anything in their life that, that shouldn't be. They didn't want any outside influences because they needed this time before the Lord. And we see that they began to read God's word, right? One fourth of the day, about three hours. And then for another three hours, they were praying and confessing 
that they, it was a genuine thing that was in their heart that they realized, man, we are still far. And they were broken over that sin. And they began to confess these things or admit these things to God. And, and so for that rest of the chapter that we did not read, verses 5 through 38, that is a prayer of confession. That whole thing is a prayer. And it's a prayer of confession of not just for themselves, but they even go back. They start with Abraham and say, God, you were good to us. You, you came to us and you supplied for us and we, we rebelled against you. And God, then you delivered us from Egypt and then we rebelled against you again and we, we forsook you and we, we didn't do what our part was. And they began to confess not even their sin, only their sins, but even that of their fathers and ancestors. And just a little side note, that chapter nine, uh, what's recorded in as that prayer is actually the longest prayer in the Bible. It's the longest prayer recorded for us in the Bible. And do you know how about how long that, they, that people say it takes to pray? Or like if you were to pray that out loud or read it out loud? It takes about six and a half minutes. And you're like, well, that'd be a long time just to read something. But what about in prayer time? I think it's a cool thing that the longest prayer recorded in the Bible is six minutes long. It shows you that not that you shouldn't pray for longer than six minutes, it's not that, but it shows you that for such a, this was a heavy prayer of confession and brokenness before the Lord, six minutes. But because God's not looking at the, quali- the quantity of time you pray, he's looking at the quality. He's looking at, okay, is your heart genuine? And what he's looking for, and what we're gonna look at today, is he's looking for a genuine brokenness over what you've done. And God loves that, and we'll see that today. The, the big idea behind this passage is this. I want you to write it down. Repentance is not just a one-time act of salvation, but a consistent attitude we are to have before the Lord. And that was, that was the people. This is what we see displayed for us, is that they have a repentant attitude. That though they, you know, we saw that they had confessed their sins and, and kind of done this and began to obey God's word in chapter 8, that they began to realize for the life of someone who follows God, repentance isn't just that one time that, oh no, I repented 10 years ago. I repented last year. No, the reality is for the believer, we honestly need to repent every single day because we still have sin. We still sin against God. It should be less and less, of course. We should be sinning less now than we did last year. There should be that growth. But at the same time, as we get closer to Jesus, and we start having his attitude towards things and his heart, we should see even the small things that we would think, well, that's just a small sin, that God sees them as something big. And so the need for repentance is still there. Though someone needs to repent and confess to even come to Jesus, you and I are not excused. This should be a consistent attitude in our life. But what does this mean? What does this look like? What is, uh, how would you guys describe repentance? If you guys had a I don't know, give, give me what's in your mind, the word repentance. You guys heard that word before? Yes? Raise your hand if you've heard that word before. Okay, so not all of you. Uh, how would anyone want to take a stab at what, what you think it means? Yeah. It's awesome, man. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty much right it. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep turning away from? Yeah, I think, no, both of those are very accurate. And I, and I think, because Thomas, you said that there's kind of two parts to it, right? 
And there are two parts. There's the confession, okay? So the, the first part of repentance is confessing, meaning it's the acknowledgement. It's, it's saying, okay, God, I, I agree with you. It's getting in line with what God sees. It's saying, God, you say this is sin, and I agree with you. I, I confess this. I admit to this. I acknowledge, okay? But the second part is a commitment. It's a commitment to change. It's a commitment. Uh, it, it involves action, okay? So there's the acknowledgement, and then there is the action. Repentance has to be both. It's a two-part a kind of attitude, and this is something that we should have to, that we need to do on a daily basis. Uh, it means to turn back to God. Uh, Charlotte mentioned that it's this turning back to. Uh, one of the ways to describe repentance is that it's a 180 turn. You guys know what a 180 turn is? Right? It's not 360. It's it's halfway. It's 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 because if you go if you do a 360 turn, you're you're right back in the way and, and the place that you started. But when you do a 180 turn. Right now, you're facing a different direction, and so one of the one of the old old terms that people would use, they would use repent, and specifically when they were sailors. So this is a term, and it's an old English term that you and I usually don't use now, except you know with church kind of stuff and the Bible and doctrine. Um, but this would be a, like a common word that people that specifically sailors would use, and they would they would yell it out uh, when you know you know how the there's usually like the, the mass and there's the guy up on top and he's like checking and he's looking to make sure that they're, you know, if there's land or any, any, any incoming ships or anything like that, or if there's like an iceberg, you know, like Titanic hit the, hit the iceberg. And so if they had someone that was looking and paying enough attention and they were able to see, then for like the Titanic, it would have been beneficial if one of the captains or one of the people said, repent, because it literally means to turn around. It's to acknowledge what the, our present course ahead is not good. And so we need to turn. We need to, we need to, there's the acknowledgement and then there's the action. Does that make sense? And so this is what repentance means. And so today through Nehemiah chapter nine, I want to focus on that first part, the confession part. Next week, we'll get to what the commitment looks like. But today I want to, what does it truly mean for you and I to confess our sins? And what is God looking for? We might know the, the basic answer, but we're going to kind of dive deep into this. I want to remind you that confession, unlike other religions, uh, you and I do not need to go to a man or a, or a person to confess our sins. That some religions teach you can't go directly to God, that you need to go through a priest or you need to go through a, a religious leader of some kind and you need to tell them and then, they can, and then they can pray for forgiveness for you. The Bible doesn't describe anything in that way, that Jesus is our high priest or our middle man. He's the one that you, you, you can talk to him right now and you are to go directly to him. Now that doesn't mean there's certain times where you need to uh, need accountability, and you should, you should have someone that you can share your struggles and temptations and things that you're going with. But to find forgiveness through the, through the Lord, you need to go directly to Him. Um, I want to also just remind you that confession is not a list of excuses of why you sinned, okay? but it's an acknowledgement that you sinned. That makes sense? That it, we shouldn't, when we come to God and we say, you know, we're, we're sorry and, um, you know, and we acknowledge that before him, Lord, I, this was wrong and I sinned against you. It shouldn't be, 
uh, Lord, I sinned against you. And, and this, this is kind of the, this, this kind of, if, if I wasn't in this situation, then I wouldn't have done it. Or, well, Johnny did this. So that, I mean, that's why my reaction was like that. That it shouldn't be a list of excuses of why we did it, but just that we did it. And, and we should take ownership in that way. Um, Guys, confession is something, of course, that happens once for the non-believer, right? They're like, let's say Saul, Saul of Tarsus and that, that amazing conversion story that we see in Acts chapter 9. There's that moment when, when Saul confesses, oh my gosh, I'm going in the wrong direction. And he asks Jesus, well, what do you want me to do? I want to I obey you. I'm, I'm ready to change. There's that one time, okay, confession that Saul, he knew, he realized right then that he was wrong. But then there's going to be other moments in Saul's, when he becomes now Paul, that he, he, he doesn't become perfect. There's still moments that he's going to sin. And same with you and I, that the first confession is that Jesus would take away the punishment for sin, okay? That's the first thing. But then this, the second and third and fourth and fifth and every other time we confess after that for specific sin is so that God would be able to restore the relationship that we have with him. I want you to write this down. Sin is separating. Sin has a separating effect to it. And it separates us from God, not forever, but relationally, not positionally. Meaning when we sin and we do something that is evil and wrong, it's not like God's now gonna kick us out of heaven and, and we're on this like, well, if you do one more bad thing, we're gonna just, just kick you out. No, it's not like that. God says, there, I, that was the first confession. Jesus took care of the punishment part. But however, you can live a, a believer can live a life here separated from God because of their sin, because they have some unconfessed sin that they're not willing to deal with. And so God says, I'm, I can't, I'm not going to listen to your prayers and I can't do what I want in your life until you come to this place, this first part of repentance, uh, which is confession. Does that make sense? Proverbs 28, 13 is an awesome Old Testament verse in Proverbs that I think describes this so well. It says, he who covers sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And I think it's awesome because uh, this, this is the, the contrast, the confession and the covering. You, you either are going to do one of either. Sorry, you, I know I, I went back. You can go back, Mark. Keep on that verse a little bit longer. Um, it's, it's either or. It's either the covering or the confessing. And now you can go to the next one. Covering, it means to hide or to prevent something from being discovered. And you guys know this because our sin nature does this. I believe this is our first reaction. Our first reaction is to kind of try to cover it up rather than to just fess up to it, right, and confess it. And you guys experience this, I know, at home with your parents. Maybe you're staying up a little bit too late, right? And you're in your bed, and you're on your phone, or you're doing something, you're staying up, just, you know, and, and you should be asleep. And so your mom slightly, slowly opens the door, and you quickly act like you're asleep, right? You throw the, you throw the phone, or you do something, and, and, and you try to cover up what, what the wrong you are doing, right? Or whatever it might be. It might be a silly example, but you're either doing one of, uh, one of the two, to not confess your sin is to cover them. And the Bible says that if you cover them, you, you're not going to prosper. I mean, you're not going to advance anywhere in your relationship with God. You're at a standstill. 
And I believe, unfortunately, there's a lot of believers that they're at a standstill in their relationship with God. That the punishment was dealt with with their sin, but now they're not going anywhere in their relationship with God because they, they're not willing to deal with those things that the Holy Spirit has been bringing them conviction. I wonder if that's any of you today. That you're at a, maybe you're just, you haven't grown in your relationship with God in months or years. And you just had to stand still because you're not willing to acknowledge. You're not willing to just talk to him in that way. And so sin is separating. So there's this separation of relationship. Because guys, relationship is always built on honesty and a two-way road. A marriage that, is, that, that when, there's, when there's unconfessed sin in it, man, it's, it's, there's not gonna be any unity or any kind of friendship you have some kind of friend and there's, and there's things that they're not telling you that they've done against you, then it's just, it, it, it's a separating factor, okay? And same with our relationship with the Lord. We know that the that Lord's always going to do by us right, but we don't always do by the Lord right. And so it, there has, that has to come up to the surface. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness righteousness. Guys, this verse is for believers. This, this letter, 1 John, was not written to unbelievers. And so this is for us that, okay, you know, he lays out very clearly, look, you're not going to be perfect. And so when you do sin, go to God, confess it to him, talk to him about it. And God's not going to like turn you away. It's not like God's forgiveness is off some days and on other days. When you come to him and you're, and you're genuine and broken about it, like we were reading, like they were, God's like, yep, I'm going to forgive you. And not only that, he's not only going to forgive you, but he's going to come and he's going to help cleanse you. He's like, okay, now that you've opened that door, I'm going to come in and I'm going to start working on those areas of your life. It's awesome. Thank God that he does that, that he never is like, eh, I, don't, I don't believe your confession or, you know, when we're genuine about it. He never gets it wrong. And so we never have to be afraid of, uh, being denied by the Lord in that way. You see, forgiveness and restoration is found in confession. And we, we need to get that relationship right with the Lord. But there is a right way to do it. Uh, there is a right way to confess. And, and we see that with the people here. Remember, they had the sackcloth. They had these different public displays of grieving because of what was going on inside. You see, God wants us to be genuine in our confession, not just to be sorry, uh, but to be broken. And that's the second part that I want to look at. Not, it's not just confession, but being broken in your confession. And I think this is something we often miss. And this is something that God, though, looks for. I think one of the best examples of broken confession, meaning being actually genuine and, and humble about it before the Lord, I think one of the best displays of that is in Psalm chapter 51. Uh, Psalm 51 was written by, anyone want to take a guess? Yeah, David, that was a pretty, yeah, I mean, there, he, he writes a lot of them. Psalm 51 is actually a, a pretty uh, a well famous psalm uh, for the reason that he wrote this, the one that we're about to read, he wrote this right after he, his sin got exposed. Remember how David slept with Bathsheba when she was someone else's wife, and then he actually killed her husband, and pretty, pretty gnarly sin. Like, this wasn't just like, oh, he messed up. This was like choice 
absolutely choosing his sin, and yet we see him exposed by Nathan the prophet. And Psalm 51 is basically his response to God. We get a little insight into David's prayer life here after messing up big time. Everyone say big time. He messed up big time. More than any of you have messed up yet. Uh, I don't think any of you have slept with another person's wife or killed anyone. I don't think. Um, But you could, I I could be wrong. Psalm 51, (laughs) verse three through six, and then we'll look at 16 and 17. We're not gonna read the whole thing, but notice this, really uh, dive into these words. David says this, and he's praying to God. We get an insight into his prayer. He says, for I acknowledge, right? Remember that means to confess. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. I hope you can sense David's attitude in there, saying that my sin is always before me. He says, God against you and you only have I sinned. Though we can't hear his tone, uh, you can read his words and, and gather that. I love the part where he says, he says of God, he says, you desire truth in my inward parts. This is cool. He says, God, you, you desire me to be completely honest with myself and with you of where I've gone wrong. That you de- desire truth. It means to be honest and open there in your inward parts, meaning the deepest parts of you that no one else sees. God says, I see them and I want you to be honest there. And he says, when you do, I'll make you to know wisdom in the hidden part. But don't miss when, when we get it, also an insight into what God desires when we come to him when we've sinned. God says, I don't desire sacrifices. I don't desire you doing something to make it up to me. He says, what I desire is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And do you see the difference? You see, in confession, he doesn't want the commitment yet. He says, no, no, let's just talk, let's just talk about this. Let's just talk about what's going on now. But sometimes when we, when we come to God in confession, we say, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read my Bible every day this week. Or we make these, these commitments without even fully confessing yet. And we try to earn God's forgiveness and favor by something we can do for him. We say, well, I'll, I'll give a little extra money in the, in the tithe bag this round, and then we'll be good. God says, no, I don't want your sacrifices. Keep your money, keep your efforts, what I want more than that, he said, I'd rather you keep, not that God doesn't want us to do those things, but he says, I'd rather you keep those things and just have a, a, a true, broken and humble heart before me. He says, that, that I can't despise. The word contrite here, uh, it's a weird, weird word to us, it's foreign, but it means this, feeling and, and, and the expression of pain and sorrow for sin. Broken and contrite, it's this, it's this as if, uh, it's just this humble spirit before the Lord. We say, man, it's expressing to him, God, I, I realize that this was against you. 
And he says that when we come to him in that way, with that humble attitude kind of bowed before him, which is not an easy thing to do always, he says he won't despise it. To despise it means to look down upon or to think lightly about. And I love this about God, that there is something in the very nature of who God is that he can't resist this. That as much as you've messed up, as much as you sin, if you come to God with the spirit of a contrite and broken heart before him, he's not going to turn you away. He's not going to be like, well, that was too much, or that was too many times. That he has the nature of, of, of how a mother would be towards their newborn baby. Where a mother with a newborn baby, if, if, if the mother sees the, the baby falling off the bed, what's going to be her reaction? She's going to die for him, right? Or her. That she's going to feel this. It's, not, it's going to be in her very nature to do that. And for God, it's in his very nature. It's something he can't, it's almost, he, he can't resist it. He, he loves that. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's wanting in our confession. He says, I just want, he just wants us to be honest and genuine and, and have some sort of, of brokenness before him and humility. And God says, I won't despise that. I won't look down upon it. I won't point the finger. I'll simply receive you and I'll forgive you and I'll start to cleanse you. It's awesome. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. It means that he's, that's, that's when he can get close to you is when you're like this. When you're proud, he, he can't get close to you because it's sin and it's sin is separating. But when he can get back near to you, close in relationship, is when there's just a genuine humility before him. It's awesome. Um, and you guys know this. You know when, when your mom makes you say sorry to your sister, but you're not really sorry, right? And, you, and there's like this, this, this confession of what you've done, but you kind of don't believe it, right? He's like, and your mom says, say sorry. And you're like, Sorry. Like, no, mean it. Like, sorry, right? It's like, that was, that was even worse than the first time. See, God doesn't want that. He's not interested in that kind of sorry or that confession. And you guys know the difference between just the surface level, I'm sorry I got caught and I'm actually genuinely grieved that I, that I offended and actually hurt the heart of God by my actions. You see, God will never make you say sorry because he really desires it to be genuine. Not just for getting caught, but for right, wronging God. Does that make sense? Is that pretty clear what confession is? Any questions on what that, what that is or what that looks like? And that's what God wants. He doesn't want, he doesn't want your commitments just yet. Okay, that's the second side of repentance. But um, as we kind of begin to land the, the plane, that we have that long prayer, right? I, I would encourage you that we're not going to read it right now, um, but it only takes, right, six and a half minutes to read out loud. Um, but you can go, I want you to go home and, and, and look at it. There's some really awesome stuff in there. Again, it's that, it's that kind of history from, uh, that, that they say. And so I want to encourage you to go and look at it, but I've kind of summed it up for you. There's basically three different things that, they, that the people really are proclaiming in this prayer to God. Remember, this is a public prayer. And there's three things I want to boil it down because I think, I believe it becomes a model for you and I. 
I believe it comes, becomes a really good model. Okay, how do, okay, say we get to that place of, okay, I want to confess this before the Lord, but how? Like, where do, where do I even start in telling him? Um, this model that I think is laid out in, in how they confess, which you'll have to read on your own, but I'll just kind of sum it up for you. I think it's a really good thing for us to adopt and begin to uh, do in our lives. And the first one is that before they get to what they did, they begin to proclaim who God is. That this is how they start their prayer. If you look at the beginning verses in verses five and six, uh, they're just saying, they're, they're almost worshiping God and say, God, you, you alone are God. You are the creator God. You, are, you sustain everything. And they just begin to kind of declare who God is. You alone are God. There's no one like you. Later in the, in the prayer, they bring up some of how God is and they bring up how he's merciful and and loving, that he's ready to pardon, that he's slow to anger, abundant in kindness. And this is always a really good way to honestly start out any prayer, is just to get your eyes on God before you get your eyes on what you did. Uh, because by the time you get to what you did, um, you just have the right perspective of things. And so, number one, they, they proclaim who God is. Number two, they proclaim what God has done. That I was sharing with you guys how they kind of went through this history, how he he initiated a relationship with Abraham. He delivered them from Egypt. He guided them and provided them through the wilderness period. And they bring up these different historical points within their people's history. And then they say, God, you gave us second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth chances. And God, you were faithful to us, but we kept messing up. God, but you always remain true. And so they kind of focus not only on who God is, but they focus on the faithfulness of God, what God, has, what God had done for them. And so an example for you and I in our life can be, God, you've been faithful to me. You provided for me. I've never been a night where I had to sleep on the street. I've never had a, a, a night where I had a hungry belly or what, whatever might have been. But you can begin to, uh, when you have that kind of perspective, okay, this, this is who God is. This is what he's done for me. By the time now you get to the third one, uh, you're more willing to, to just talk to him. And the third one is to proclaim what you have done. And that's what they began to do. They talked about in this prayer how they were stubborn and how their people, their, even they, they claimed uh, you know, for themselves the sin of their fathers. And they said how stubborn and how they were hard-hearted against God. And they told him, God, we, we were disobedient to you. And you were right in the things that you did. And they say, basically they come to this conclusion because they were in not an amazing circumstance. So now they have the wall built in Jerusalem. Uh, that was not how God originally designed it. They're supposed to have this amazing kingdom, right? At one time, the kingdom of Israel was the most wealthiest nation on the planet. Uh, the, the, the power was, was unmatched, that when Solomon was on the throne, wisdom was unmatched, but now they're barely making it, that they have kingship over them, that they don't even, aren't even able to really rule themselves. And they kind of acknowledge, they say, God, where we are is because of us. Where we are is because of our sin. And when you come to that place of confession, that's a good thing to note to God and to even just for yourself saying, God, I'm not, I'm not blaming you for anything. I've gotten myself in this sticky situation. But the interesting thing, guys, is that these three things, do you think God already knew them? Or do you think he, was, he became informed because of their prayer? No, he already knew them. He knew, of course, God knows who he is. Okay? God knows what he's done. 
And God actually already knew what the people had done. And so you might say, well, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of this prayer and confession? It's the purpose for you. It's not about informing God, but it's acknowledging and admitting this place. It's for your own heart. And this is the great model of prayer of confession in this order. It's God is, God did, and then I did. And this is that first half of of repentance. Next week, we'll look at the second half of, of, okay, now that you've confessed that and you're right with God, um, what are you going to commit? What are you going to do? What's the action uh, for that? And so I believe just because this is God's word and he works to his word, he says he does, that for some of you, this has been convicting, that there's some maybe some hidden things in your life that are unconfessed between you and God. And I don't know what those things are. It's not like your mom came to me after, before service and was like, hey, make sure you talk about this because this is going on. I don't know. I mean, I know some of you a little bit, but for the most part, I, I'm not with you every day, but God is. And are, are there some things in your life that, that, that you're separated to him by? Is there a halt? Is there a stopping point in your relationship with him because you're, you're simply unwilling to bend your knee to him? You're unwilling to acknowledge. Well, today, the awesome thing is that God has his arms wide open and that he says, come. And especially if you're, if you're a believer, you're already his son and daughter. He's just, the, the punishment has actually already been taken care of. There's no punishment. And so when you come to him, it's just to be able to get in right relationship so he can work on you again. It's all win and no loss. And so I want to encourage you to get right with him today. But I, I had this verse that was just on my heart that I wanted to share with you. And it's Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. It doesn't have to do necessarily with confession, uh, but it does have to do with, I think, can be the state of our heart sometimes. The Bible says that we are to sow for ourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. And for some of you, it's time. It's time to break up the fallow ground. Do you guys know what fallow ground is? If you do not, you can take a peek at the picture before that is fallow ground. Maybe you've seen it in the desert. Uh, it is hard ground where on the surface it's cracked, dry, no moisture. You couldn't, right? If you pot it, if you try to um, pot a plant there or put, you know, plant, pot a plant, what am I saying? If you tried to plant a plant right there, it would not work, right? There's no, it's not good. And some of you, this is how your heart looks before God, that you're hard before him. So I want to encourage you, the Bible says that we're to break some of that up ourselves, so that God can come in and work. Worship team, you can come out. Um, I want to share with you just one last quote by the guy's name is Alan Redpath. He's an old-time preacher, but he, says, he said this once. He says, I believe God is more ready to forgive the sins of his people than a mother is to snatch a little child out of the fire. But the sin God never forgives is the sin we will not confess. Do you guys want to know the one sin? that God won't forgive? It's that. There's only one sin that, that, is, is, that he can't forgive, and it's, and it's the, the sin of unconfession. Now, I want to encourage you, if you are a believer, uh, you know, some of those religions that I talked about, some of them believe if you had some unconfessed sin in your life when you die, then, then you won't be in heaven. It's not true. There could be right now, maybe you have unconfessed sin and you die of a heart attack. 
you'd still be in heaven if you're his child. He doesn't work like that. But right now, you're missing out on the blessings that God has. Now, if you are a believer, or sorry, if you are not a believer here today, uh, you have reason to worry, and you need to confess your sin, and you need someone to take those away, or else you're going to have to pay for them in all of eternity uh, yourself. The awesome thing is that Jesus offers, he says, "I'll I'll take it for you. You just have to come to me. You have to bend your knee to me. You have to humble yourself. Remember, that's always what God is looking for. Make sense? All right. Father, we come before you and we thank you that, that you do give us so many chances. Lord, that we can never exhaust your forgiveness. That we can never do something so bad that, that you remove our salvation. That the blood of Jesus is capable, powerful enough to cover a multitude of sins. And so we thank you that that when we do come to you and we can just be honest with you, that you don't shame us, that you don't point your finger at us, but you forgive us and you cleanse us. God, you're a good God. And so, Lord, we agree with David in Psalm 51 when he says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, sometimes we're so sinful that our sin covers our other sin. Lord, I just pray that you would just tear all that out and that you would search us today. And if there's a part of our heart where we think we're okay with you, but you think differently, or that you would deal with us as your children right now as we worship you. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name.